electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Hey, welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. Today we'll talk about this tech turnaround. The Nasdaq goes positive after the steep drop this morning and what that red-hot jobs number means for tech today. Plus some deep dives on the results of the biggest of the big, why Apple turned around in today's session and Amazon has not. Later on, an exclusive with the CEO of Microchip, why the street thinks that stock is undervalued. What a Friday, Dee. What a Friday, and we made it. Let's take a look at the markets as we close out a very busy week of earnings and economic data. As Carl said, we were way off the lows of the day. The Nasdaq's still down about two-tenths of one percent, but we were down as much as two percent in earlier trading. Right now, it is down, like I said, two-tenths of a percent. The Dow up by a few points, 40, that is. Despite turning lower after earnings results, take a look at the mega caps. Apple is now positive. Alphabet has been trying to make it there. Amazon has clawed back a lot of its downside. So what does it all add up to? Well, John, the Nasdaq is on track for its longest weekly winning streak since November of 2021. All of that on the back of results that, let's face it, weren't all that great. Yeah, um... Well, let's start with Apple. The iPhone revenues falling uh, as they continue to face supply chain issues in China. But as CEO Tim Cook pointed out to our Steve Kovac, they actually came in below operating expenses for the December quarter. And then there's Amazon. They saw misses on the top and bottom lines, including a miss for AWS. But their nascent ad business surged 19 percent year over year. Then finally, Alphabet, Google being hit hard on that front, missing on its ad numbers across the board. But they are talking about their long-term AI bets rather than talk too much about that. Mentioning AI more than 50 times on the earnings call, nearly twice as often as Microsoft following its open AI investment. And at the end of the day, despite average falling price targets, all three remain consensus buys. Um, of the three, Carl, I got to say, the more I've looked at it, Apple had a good quarter. I mean, given the macroeconomic headwinds on a constant currency basis, iPhone revenue was about flat, they said. Their inventories, they were actually constrained and think they could have grown if not for those inventory issues. Um, and, you know, iPad grew. They, they were pretty stable across the board, but cautious about the guide. Uh, the other two, Amazon and Alphabet Google, in, in a different place. Andy Jassy was on that call talking about the digestion process they're going through across multiple different pieces of the business. Uh, including trying to figure out grocery and then uh, getting this supply chain in line, get some of that expansion digested that they did over the last couple of years. Yep, that's why, well, certainly on the Apple front, uh, why it was so notable to see it down on the pre-market and then reverse to the upside uh, in the middle of this morning session, D. Three-month high gets back to 157. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we mentioned with Kramer today, we got some actual price target increases from the likes of Webbush and, uh, and Deutsche reiterating their buy rating already. 
Yeah, I think because the street um, was able to look through some of the turbulence and say, okay, the fundamental business is still good. Um, you might argue that it's harder to make that case with Amazon and Alphabet. I mean, you just look at the pure profitability. Um, take a look at sort of Amazon's revenue over the last few years. It's nearly doubled. Profitability, however, has fallen off a cliff. And this is exactly the problem that Andy Jassy is trying to solve on the call last night, his first ever Entering the analyst call as CEO, talked a lot about streamlining. Sundar Pichai talked a lot about sharpening their focus. Um, details, though, were a little scant, um, Carl or John, because we know they need to get there. Um, Alphabet, for example, talked about slowing the pace of hiring still. And I wonder if the street wants to hear about more cuts. They still hired three and a half thousand employees this past year. And take a look at these operating margins, 24%. They were at 31% not all that long ago. And of course, just all the talk about AI. Uh, this is not a new thing for Google. They talk about it every quarter. It's not some hot, flashy thing like it may be for other companies, but it did feel like there was real urgency there, John. Yeah, I think investor on the AI thing, investors beware. Not because AI isn't real. It's not a, a metaverse situation here. But because a lot of these companies, they've had an AI strategy for a long time. They just know investors want to hear them say AI a bunch of times, so they do it on the call. So you've got to drill well, down John. and look at what's really going on there. Yeah, Carl? Yeah. I mean, I assume you guys have seen, for example, D, a chart of uh, C3 AI today, up uh, 21%. I'm sure Tom Siebel's having a very good morning, but John's right. People just, they're just looking for the, they're just screening for the letters. Well, speaking of Tom Siebel, I actually spoke to him the day before yesterday, and part of what they're doing is incorporating open AI into their AI yeah. platform, uh, into their product. So I talked to him mm -hmm. and to their CTO. That's something that we should talk about some more because it is quite interesting. But I wanted to go back to Amazon. I actually think Andy Jassy and the team did give quite a bit of interesting detail on the call on their optimization. He talked about how much video is driving engagement and signups in Prime and that they see that investment is worth it. Yep. He talked about how grocery is a tough nut to crack and they're going to have to spend this year figuring out how to differentiate grocery before they start to scale it again, but they do expect to scale it again after 23. So I, I think they actually did give some good detail, but mm -hmm. with all of this optimization that they've got to do and the uncertainty on what's actually going to happen in the macro picture this year, investors do need to well, consider that, Dee. That's why you buy Amazon, right? I mean, the multiple is so much higher than their peers, but you buy it because you think that they might be able to pull off groceries, and certainly they've pulled off advertising. Uh, to your C3 AI point, Carl, it's such a good one because it really is indicative of this broader market moment. It reminds me of 2021 when things were simply... Bitcoin or blockchain in the name were rising. I'm not making the comparison saying that AI is like blockchain or Bitcoin, but just the buzz takes hold and C3 AI has just been on an absolute tear. The ticker, of course, AI. Let's continue the conversation on Amazon and Alphabet with Cowan's John Blackledge. Uh, John, which one did you like better? Did you get enough detail on efficiencies and better profitability from both those names? Yeah, I, I yeah, I was listening to you guys in the lead, and I, I agree. We we didn't from either company. We didn't get you know kind of like quantification of the various cost uh, containment um, efforts that they're doing, um, like we kind of got with Meta uh, the night before. Um, but what I would say for um, Amazon, and both both actually beat on. Uh, on their profitability in 4Q for Amazon if you X out one-time items. But the one thing um, that I thought was interesting and positive um, on the margin 
was they are seeing efficiencies of the fulfillment business. And I've been on, you know, we've talked about doubling the fulfillment network over the last few years, ramping the transport costs. They had um, their shipping costs were up 4% year over year, um, while they um, uh, their unit um, growth was 8%. And so talking to them after the call last night, that was better than they thought it was going to be. And, and so I think Jassy kind of talked about it a little bit on the call. And, and so that, that was certainly positive um, on the margin. John, are you worried about cloud prospects? Um, of course, we got that warning last week from Microsoft. And it was notable how on the Amazon call last night, when analysts asked them, is mid-teens a holdable growth rate? And the CFO said, you know, it's not. We just don't know. What does that make you think? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so they said mid-teens growth in January um, versus 20% growth in the fourth quarter. Um, I think it probably holds for the first quarter. And then after that, we have it going down, deselling a bit further in the second quarter, um, and then kind of stabilizing maybe uptick um, as you get easing comps um, at the end of the year. But I think it, it depends on the macro. I mean, they said multiple times last night, macro uh, is impacting enterprise uh, spend on public cloud. Uh, companies are trying to cut costs where they can. And, uh, you know, AWS um, isn't immune to it. And even, you know, Google Cloud um, growth profiles higher off a lower base. Um, that also missed our number two, although the growth was um, better than AWS's. Hey, John, you know, the most constructive things that the bulls are assembling on Amazon, but uh, mostly tech at large are, uh, they've made their cuts and there are more to come. Uh, the guides yeah. are doable. Uh, the community is underinvested. Uh, there's a collapsing VIX, a more stable backdrop. Everything's more investable in tech. Do you have a problem with any one of those things? No, I, I don't, Carl. The the problem is that we, I, I think I think you're going to, well, well, we have, just take Amazon, for example, we have their op income up 70% this year. Um, so um, we think we're going to get it and, and it could be better. And we've written about this. And and um, when you look at just taking uh, Amazon's op, op income this year, we have about 21 billion. If you back out AWS and you back out the advertising business, assuming some reasonable margin, the rest of the business is, is still like losing. I think we have $16 billion. So there's, you know, before COVID, um, you do that same math and the rest of the business was positive one or two billion. So, um, you know, there, there's more to go. Um, in 2022, rest of biz losses were in the mid 20 billion. So we're, we're kind of getting there. And I think I, 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 I'm bullish on the fact that we're going to see, I think they're really taking costs seriously and we're going to see it. Um, but it, it would be better if, if they were a little bit more uh, clear um, and, and maybe quantified it. Hey, John, uh, let's talk about CapEx for a moment when it comes to cloud, because we're talking about supply chain and the digestion that Amazon has to do there. But it seems like cloud customers are doing their own digestion of cloud spend here where, where you know, both Amazon and Microsoft are talking about optimization, customers wanting to get more for what they're already spending. What does that mean for what these companies are going to spend in CapEx on cloud? It seems like that's going to come down. And if anything, what they're going to spend on is their own uh, custom chips that allow them to run optimized workloads. And that could end up hurting some of the uh, external vendors. Yeah. Uh, yeah, th that's right. So what did we hear? Uh, Alphabet told us Alphabet told us uh, their capex will be flat uh, in, um, in in 2023 at about 30 billion. Amazon never guides uh, does a guide to uh, John to capex, but um, take last year for example, the AWS portion we think was up about 10 billion dollars. 
I do think that's going to come down. We have modeled mid-teens decline overall for Amazon because I do think you get some relief on 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 the uh, AWS spend. And last year, uh, you had a, a big drop in their fulfillment uh, capex spend as you know with the with the big build over 2020 and 2021. So yeah, I do think you're you're going to get lower capex at Amazon and and uh, and yeah, obviously Alphabet told us uh, it'll be flat. Right. John Blackledge, always great to get your insights. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Big theme this week has been the state of the ad market. As you know, we've got Snap, we've had Meta providing some conflicting commentary, Amazon and that disappointing number across the board. But as we mentioned, ad revenue was one of the lone bright spots. Let's bring in Julia Borston, talk more about their number and what it says about the fears, Julia, of an ad recession. Well, Carl, some of the tech giants fared better than others with this feared ad recession because of how their particular ad products work. And we saw last night that Amazon was the best position when it came to advertising, soaring where others struggled. Amazon's ad revenue grew 19% in the quarter, while Snaps was flat. Google search ads declined 2%, Meta's ads fell 4%, and YouTube's ads fell about 8%. Now, that divergence is because of how all of these different types of ads work. Brand advertising, which Snap and YouTube are most exposed to, suffered the most, whereas direct response ads, which can prompt an immediate sale, those are the ones that are succeeding. Amazon CFO explaining that Amazon's ad revenue grew faster than underlying sales revenue because of the advantage in the fact that, quote, our advertising is at the point of sale when someone is ready to buy. This driving Amazon's global digital ad market share to over 7% this year, up from just 5% in 2020, as Amazon makes gains on the two dominant players in digital advertising, Google and Meta. True is saying another key advantage of Amazon's growing ad business is that it presumably has much higher margins than the retail business. Guys? Julia, on the Alphabet side, the team talked about YouTube shorts, uh, 50 billion average daily views. It seems to have kind of come out of nowhere and they want to monetize it this year. Um, how can they do so? What's your take on it? Can they do so in a way that may be faster or easier than what Meta has been able to do with Reels? Yeah, it's so interesting because this is such a good comparison to what Meta has seen with Reels. YouTube Shorts is, again, inspired by, I will say, the success of TikToks in its short-form video format. Whenever you have a new format, you want to drive engagement to that format first, then the ad dollars should follow. The question is just how much is lost in that transition um, as you're trying to bring advertisers over to this new format. So I think they're on track to try to drive that ad revenue, but the question is just will YouTube Shorts ever be as profitable from an advertising standpoint as the traditional format has been. But there's no question that that's where consumers are going. And it seems like advertisers are getting used to creating ads for that shorter format. Um, but the question is whether, especially if you look at this brand advertising, which is what YouTube has been so good at, providing a digital alternative to TV, if they'll be able to do more direct response right. in that short format. Julia, some of this commentary seems potentially bad for Pinterest and Snap. And I, I know it cuts both ways, particularly with Pinterest, but um, if the shift is away from brand and toward direct response, what do they have to do? 
Well, it's so interesting. So Snap has about 50-50 brand direct response. That's according to Mark Mahaney, who gave us some estimates. Mark Mahaney also says that Pinterest is the one that's most exposed to brand advertising, with about 75% of his ads coming from brand advertising. But Pinterest also has a new CEO, Bill Reddy, who is very focused on driving transactions, driving commerce and guests, direct response ads on the platform. So we're going to be hearing a lot from him on Monday about what when the company reports after the bell, about what the company is planning to really continue that transition into direct response. There's such potential in Pinterest, Carl, because people go there looking for products, many of the time looking for products to buy. So, uh, but they do have a lot of room to go in terms of moving away from this reliance on brand advertising. Yeah, uh, obviously busy week for pins as well with some of the layoffs this week. Uh, Julia, thanks. Maybe talking a little bit. Uh, up next, we're going to dive further into Apple's quarter. As you know, a miss for both revenue and profit. Is demand deteriorating or can they overcome a tough macro? Either way, the stock awfully close to levels that we last saw around Labor Day. We'll talk about that when Tech Check is back. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. Apple's three-year winning streak of record sales and profits coming to an end. The company reported its first quarterly revenue decline in nearly four years. But shares rebounding in the trade right now after the strong jobs number. Let's bring in Bank of America's Wamsi Mohan, who went from a buy to a neutral rating on the stock in September, and CNBC technology correspondent Steve Kovac, who spoke with Tim Cook yesterday around earnings. So, Steve, I want to start with you. Um, I thought this quarter was actually pretty darn good considering uh, they, on a constant currency basis, were about flat on iPhone, think they could have done better if supply had been more available, and um, they're in a really good inventory position. Yeah, that's right, John. And in fact, on a constant currency basis, they're saying they would have grown uh, this quarter had it not been for all those foreign exchange headwinds that we've been hearing about because of the strong dollar. But look, production problems, when I spoke uh, with Tim Cook yesterday, he said it's largely behind them. Now, he wouldn't say they're back to full production capacity, but they do have the capacity now to meet the demand that, they, that they're seeing. But the, again, the big question for myself and analysts on the call was, is that demand from that they had that they could have fulfilled last year carrying over into this year. And they did not have a good answer for that. Tim Cook basically saying they just don't have enough data yet to say, are they seeing a carryover into this quarter? And look, they did say across product categories, John, that basically everything but services is going to fall again. Sales are going to be down year over year. What investors seem to be liking with the stock up a little over a percent now, I think it is. Uh, what investors seem to be liking is iPhone is not going to fall quite as much 
And so there's a little bit of optimism that even though there's weakness among the consumer for demand, that uh, they're going to perform as best as they can. And I would also point out, John, that even in this tough environment, uh, Apple gained market share, according to IDC. Yeah, so Wamsi, that I think is the tough place to be in if you're neutral on this, right, is that unlike the rest of the hardware market, Apple is not grappling with oversupply when it comes to inventory or when it comes to finished product. And yes, while we're not sure what demand is going to look like, their strategy is playing out when it comes to vertical integration. Uh, They're continuing to work on the Mac. We should expect to see some new products toward the end of the year. Um, Might you have to shift your position here? Uh, Well, thanks for having me, uh, John, and maybe to quote you. On the other hand, I think (laughs) what is important over here is to really understand what truly transpired through the quarter, right? So the expectation going into the quarter when estimates were at $128 in revenue was there was going to be a 10-point FX headwind. What ultimately transpired was an 8-point FX headwind, so actually less than what originally was anticipated, and yet revenues came in at $117 billion. Also, we have to remind ourselves that iPhones would have been up without the impact of the supply chain issues. But on the other hand, you did have an extra week in the quarter, Mm. which tells you that there's about a seven point uh, benefit that they got. So they would actually have been down on apples to apples compare. So I think there's a lot to parse through in terms of FX, in terms of production issues, in terms of channel inventory. But the reality is that demand is weak. And the management team acknowledged this on the call that the macro was tough. It's been a long time since they've attributed anything to macro. And frankly, as you look into next quarter, the acceleration is coming more from a reported number based on the lack of the extra week rather than improvement in the demand fundamentals. So I think when you parse through this, what's clear is that estimates are still coming down. Uh, When we downgraded the stock back in uh, late September, you know, uh, I think consensus estimates were sitting around $6.45. Mm-hmm. And I think as the dust settles here, we're going to be closer to maybe $6 in earnings. And so yeah. in this meantime, the market multiple has moved up and so has Apple's. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance in this quarter, Wamsi. So, Steve, if we could broaden it out yeah. a little bit. I know that Tim Cook told you that production pro- problems, excuse me, are largely behind them. But they kind of popped up in the first place unexpectedly, especially when we're talking about Zhengzhou, China, where yeah. they make so many of the new City. iPhones, iPhone City, exactly. Um, so what did he say on the manufacturing front and shifting or diversifying some of that to India and Vietnam? Is there still that urgency, um, even if those problems have largely gone away? China's just such a black box. Yeah. Right? One of the big quotes on that analyst call yesterday from Tim was, um, I'm very bullish on India. Now, he was mostly talking about the consumer there. They're about to open up a new store there. They've been trying to crack India for so long on the consumer side. India doesn't have that rising middle class that they did in China. But what he did say is we're looking at China the same way or we're looking at India, rather, the same way we used to look at China as this growing opportunity for obviously manufacturing. We know they're increasing manufacturing there to alleviate any future pressure in China and across Asia. But also the consumer, they see more opportunity there now. Seven years ago, they tried, didn't quite work out the same way, just even on cheaper phones. It seems like now things have finally shifted and they feel like they can make some moves out there. Right, and the next big bet. Steve, thanks very much, Wamsi. Thanks to you as well. Talk to you both soon. Up next, layoffs are driving workers back to the office. We'll take a look at occupancy data and what it means for the talent right here in the tech sector. Plus, check out shares of Upstart Holdings downgraded at Loop following an 80% rally 
to start the year. Only down less than 2% after that rally. Read more about that call on CNBC.com. We will be right back. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. That hotter than expected jobs number sending stocks a bit lower this morning, although the Dow's up 77 as the economy adds jobs. Those workers are returning to the office at the highest rates since the pandemic began. The return to work surge comes as companies in virtually every industry cut headcount. Robert Frank has more on how the layoffs are bringing workers back to the office. Robert, I noticed this journal piece this week saying the boss is back in charge. Certainly a little more in charge than they were before. And since the first time since the pandemic, a majority of the nation's office workers are back in the office. Office use for the 10 biggest cities hit 50.4% last week. That's according to Castle. There are still big differences between cities, though. In Austin, Texas, you have 68% of the workers back. In San Jose, back there in Techland, it's only 41%. New York now at 48%. The actual number, though, could be even higher. A survey of New York's biggest employers by the Partnership for New York City found that 52% of Manhattan office workers are back. For most companies, that means three days a week. Only 9% of New York employers are mandating five days a week back in the office. They say the new normal for Manhattan occupancy will be around 56%. So that's where it may level off. Now, the industries with the highest office rates in New York are real estate, finance, and law. Tech among the lowest, though labor experts say the layoff fears that are growing now may be driving many workers back to the office. More CEOs are also cracking down. You've got Starbucks telling employees to be in the office now at least three days a week. Disney requiring four days a week back in the office starting in March. And Carl, as you mentioned, as that balance of power starts to shift a little bit back toward employers, we may see these numbers start to drift even higher. Uh, Robert, we know that uh, the New York area, Manhattan specifically, has been lagging uh, the national average in terms of uh, those card swipes. What does it mean for the New York economy? The New York economy really is still kind of in denial about this. You have the governor and the mayor all saying, please get back to work. Although you've got the subways now looking at this shorter Monday and Friday schedule. But look, whether you're talking about restaurants, whether you're talking about all the commuter economy that's based on a five day a week economy, that has still has to shift to three days a week. And we have 100 million square feet of empty office space in New York. It does not look based on this survey that employers are looking to add space anytime soon. Uh, Yeah, might even take advantage of maybe smaller footprints uh, once some of these leases roll. Uh, Pretty interesting numbers, though, uh, certainly nationwide, Robert. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Robert Frank. San Francisco, where I am, still some ways to get back to that uh, occupancy. Speaking of return to work, though, we'll have a lot more on this morning's jobs report after the break. Take a look at tech's impact on the most recent number. The major averages, they are off session lows, and the Nasdaq has has actually turned slightly positive. The 10-year is at at 3528. Don't go away. We'll be right back. 
couple hours into the trading day, get a check on the markets. Uh, close to session highs here. Dow's up 105. S&P just now creeping back into the green. Nasdaq's gone positive in the last few minutes as well. Some of your big movers today, very busy session. Clorox among the best performers following an EPS and revenue beat. Organic growth coming in much better than expected. Uh, Ford shares, though, are sinking after reporting that ugly quarter that did miss. Company flagging some supply chain constraints and some poor execution for that miss. Starbucks is lower as well. Q1 earnings and revenue miss. Comp growth below consensus. A big drag coming from China where comps were down 29. And then Apple, as we mentioned earlier, session highs here, I think up near 4%. Yeah, a little bit better on a share price at 157. Going to take you back to the fall of last year. Let's get a news update with our Bertha Coombs. Hey, Bertha. Hey, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is postponing his trip to China this weekend. This after a suspected Chinese spy balloon was spotted over Montana near U.S. nuclear missile silos. Blinken put his trip on hold as Chinese officials expressed regret for the incident, saying the craft is a civilian weather research balloon that blew off course. New England is bracing for an Arctic blast that is expected to drive wind chill temperatures down to 50 below zero in parts of Maine. Public schools in the Boston area have been closed ahead of the extreme cold, as well as some other schools from central New York up to Maine. About 16 million people are under wind chill warnings across New England. And a suspect has been arrested in that disappearance of two tamarind monkeys from the Dallas Zoo. Tips from the public led police to find the monkeys in the closet of an abandoned home. Other tips led to the suspect, who has been charged with six counts of animal cruelty. That's really a wild story. No pun intended, John. It's a good pun, though, if it were intended, Bertha. Thanks. Uh, let's turn back to this morning's job report. The, in the economy adding 517,000 jobs in January. Big surprise to the upside, despite a flurry of companies announcing layoffs recently. So was today's number a notch for the bulls or for the bears? To try and answer that question, let's bring in CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman, who also has a bit more on the impact on the tech sector. <coughs> Steve, it seems like good news is good news and bad news is good news in this market. Yeah, I think that's right. But John, I got to tell you, I'm hearing a lot of astonishment, a lot of adjectives, even some epithets about this report. Those saying it means the recession is off or delayed to those saying it means more Fed rate hikes to come. To Mark Zandi from Moody's, who tweeted out that it's so big and so unbelievable, he thinks people ought to ignore it. Here's the numbers. 517 is what uh, John already told you, blowing out the estimates. Those revisions upward, they'll tell you that there's a momentum in the market here. Remember December, low unemployment rate. The lowest is 1969. Average hourly earnings, though, were muted. That's a good sign for the Fed inflation. Hours worked up strongly. People using more of the workers that they have. Most sectors saw job growth. We had leisure and hospitality. They're trying to recover the jobs lost in the pandemic. Government education, goods producing, and temporary help, another good sign. But the first signs of tech layoff did show up, but not very much. The government registered a small bit of the 41,000 tech layoffs the Challenger says took place last month, but it was the biggest drop in the sector since August 2020. I'm looking at that computer infrastructure job there, uh, sector there especially. So there may be more to come. I did some work here. I looked at just the computer infrastructure and data processing jobs. There's some 80,000 jobs over where they otherwise would be if they didn't go through that hiring frenzy during the pandemic. So there may be more to right size in that business. The tech data is symbolic of other industries. A lot of announced layoffs and industries saying the economy is slowing, 
But you wouldn't know it, guys, from looking at this report. <laughs> yeah, well, the tech jobs make up such a small percentage of those overall jobs, right, Steve, which we've talked about in the past. Uh, it's been called a wow, wow, yeah. wow job report. Um, but, of course, the bears, there's always something for them. And within this report, could you say that maybe that was services costs and the market might be too optimistic about inflation. How do you square this with the market reaction and the Fed's intention to look at data over a longer term than what the market's looking at? I, I think you, you probably nailed the, the big negative on this, which is it puts the Fed back into play. One thing we've been following, Deirdre, is the gap between where the market prices the Fed at the end of the year and where the Fed is forecast to go. Uh, the Fed at 5.13. The market now has come up towards the Fed. That gap is now around 57 basis points. It had been as much as 75. So the market took a 25 basis point step towards the Fed and the Fed didn't move. So Powell's probably feeling not too bad. The bigger question is whether or not this will ultimately really lead to inflation, this tight job market. Then, of course, you can't you can't uh, leave out those who say this may be the last really good one, but they keep waiting for this job market to slow down and it just won't quit. Is this, Steve, a sort of exoneration for the Fed and the people that said, oh, my goodness, Powell doesn't know what he's doing. He's running us straight into a wall. He's tightening too quick. It seems like they went to 25 just in time or, you know, if not for the stat you just mentioned, some might say, boy, he really should have done 50 basis points. But the market's getting closer to the Fed. So maybe maybe this is, you know, baby bear, you know, just right. Yeah, look, um, the best possible outcome of this kind of uh, gap between the two is, is something of a meeting in the middle, right? At the market, slowly takes its time and get, well, you don't want us to just jerk up, oh my God, it's going to be 5% and we got to go from 450 to 5% for a year in in a hurry. If it happens over time, I think that's a, it's okay. Uh, but, and, and then maybe the Fed comes down a little bit, not a crazy thought that if you get a couple good inflation numbers, maybe the Fed uh, reduces its outlook a little bit. So let's say you meet at 480, 490. That would not be a bad outcome. John, the bad outcome would be if we get to a place where the market thinks the Fed ought to cut hmm. and the Fed is either staying the same or or um, or even hiking at this point. But you're right, John, in the sense that maybe you want to think about adding another 25 to the upside here, at least risk, risk, risk management-wise. Yeah. And I like to give Baby Bear credit for having it just right. Goldilocks stole it, but it actually belonged to him. Uh, Steve Leisman, thank you. <laughs> Coming up, first it was pet food, then video games, and then what, Alibaba. Now, high-end clothing, what Ryan Cohen sees in Nordstrom as we head to break. Check out shares of Bill.com sinking more than 25% this morning. Despite reporting an earnings beat, it's the weak revenue guidance that has investors concerned. CEO Renee Lassert is going to join the show on Monday. You do not want to miss that. We'll be right back. If there's one thing that Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk can agree on, it's their mutual love of HBO's mega hit, the post-apocalyptic drama, The Last of Us. Both billionaires praised the series on Twitter this past weekend, and audiences agree the show, an adaptation of the 2013 video game of the same name, set 20 years after a fungal pandemic, is HBO's second most watched premiere ever after House of the Dragon and was just renewed for a second season. For our latest binge, we sat down with the showrunner the co-creator, the EP, Craig Mazin, and we asked him if the series has opened the door for a new wave of video game adaptations for television. 
tweeted an interview with HBO's marketing chief who talked about establishing trust with the game's fan base. And a friend of mine quoted it and he said, with the Marvel DC hegemony looking a bit tired, maybe video game adaptations finally get the best and the brightest. It's a fresh field in terms of what's ripe for, for IP. It is in the past. Adaptations of video games have in certain areas struggled because the companies were approaching it a bit cynically. They didn't quite understand the passion that people had for video games. They themselves weren't connected to that material in an emotional way. So what they looked at was a balance sheet of sales and built an audience and they made a calculated decision. The problem then is a lot of times you end up with an adaptation that isn't really doing anything for the people that love the material in the first place. It's not doing anything for people who didn't know about the material. So you end up somewhere in the soggy middle. If there's anything that comes out of this that's good for our business, it's that maybe we've shown a different way to adapt video games that other people might heed. I'm not saying that we're geniuses that everyone needs to follow, but I think maybe we've shown a little bit of a path of how things could work better. You can watch the entire interview with uh, Craig on cnbc.com slash binge right now. And for the full uncut conversation, you can join us for a special live stream on Twitter or YouTube after the show today, 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. D, it's a, it's a phenomenon. Uh, Pedro Pascal is going to host SNL tomorrow night. Um, and he really does. Craig really mm -hmm. makes a case that there's a structural blind spot in Hollywood due to a lack of gamers. I haven't seen it yet. It is high up on my list. I was trying not to look at the clips we were just running because I don't want to know anything. <laughs> but certainly it feels like the video game genre is having a moment. It's going mainstream. I haven't seen the series yet, but I did read a novel that's, you know, entered the mainstream as well, based not based on a video game, but with a video game very central to it, and that is Tomorrow and Tomorrow Tomorrow by Gabriel Zevin, which I know a lot of people are loving and reading <laughs> these days. So, again, the video game genre, it's here. Um, yeah. could argue it has been, but mainstream now. Uh, uh, John, there's also, uh, it's another example of streaming shows making things go viral. In this case, it's Linda Ronstadt and it's Depeche Mode. Mm -hmm. uh, and that really is what feeds attention in, in this era where it is just so competitive in streaming. Yeah, Colin, I'm so glad you hit on the video game genre and its potential. It makes me think about Uncharted, the movie that Tom Holland did not long ago. Got, got panned by critics. I think it's got like a 45 percent Metacritic, but it did better than 400 million at the box office. Fifth highest grossing video game film of all time did mm. well. So it, it seems like there's potential in these stories. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll see a lot more of it. Uh, great interview, Carl. Can't wait to see the whole thing. Coming up, a check on chips. Qualcomm and Microchip both out with quarterly results. We will break down the numbers as those stocks had higher this morning. We'll speak also exclusively to the CEO of Microchip for more on its very bullish quarter. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Welcome back. Let's turn now to Qualcomm. Take a look. Shares up about a half a percent, posting a miss on revenue. Quarterly guidance falling below analyst expectations. CEO Cristiano Amon weighing in on the earnings call, highlighting softening demand, higher inventory, adding that the company will be tightening its belt, limiting spending moving forward, Carl. But uh, at the same time, a lot of people saying this quarter, not as much of a downside surprise as last quarter, and they're handling costs pretty well. Yeah, guiding EPS at 215, uh, kind of at the midpoint streets at 229. I don't know, John, whether or not uh, you think you can take that and AMD and maybe a couple other ST Micro players and argue that the guidance this season was nowhere near mm -hmm. X Intel what we were afraid of. 
Yeah, and speaking of relatively good news, out of chips, very different story for Microchip. And we've got the CEO joining us now after delivering a beat across the board in their latest results and upping the dividend. Uh, guidance actually coming in above consensus as well. An exclusive now with Microchip CEO Ganesh Murthy. Uh, welcome. So it looks like the industrial demand is holding up pretty well. Your minimal exposure to consumer is more at appliances, and that's a bit less volatile too. How does 2023 look so far from your perspective? You know, we're off to a good start in 2023. We have uh, confidence in the March quarter. Uh, we went out of our way to give uh, a directional guidance for the June quarter. It's hard to tell how the rest of the year is going to look, but we have strong businesses in strong end markets, and we have some company-specific growth drivers that gives us confidence. And we're still working through a large backlog and constrained capacity that we want to improve as we go through the year. So what does that mean that you do with costs? I mean, uh, labor markets overall still seem to be pretty tight based on the jobs number that we got. But how much are you investing uh, and leaning into that versus being cautious given the cloudiness of the macro? You know, we're cautious even in the up cycle uh, that was taking place in 2021, 2022. So we don't have an overhang where we have extra costs that we need to be going out and taking out. We're, in fact, looking at the current environment to be able to get some of the resources that were harder to find last year and the year before. And uh, we're having good success with it. And uh, we want to make good investments in a time when good assets are available. Uh, and some of those are going to be equipment. Some of that is going to be people. But uh, we're leaning in to where we can go. Ganesh, good morning. It's Sirja. What's your visibility into the China reopening economic recovery? And how are you thinking about this market given rising geopolitical tensions? Great question. So in the short term, you know, last quarter was difficult. Uh, we had a, a double issue, first from COVID restrictions, which uh, limited production for many of our customers. Then as they opened it up, you know, COVID spread very quickly. Uh, you know, we had 80, 90 percent of employees and most companies I've talked to, that many people got COVID. And so December was a bad month from that standpoint. Uh, they're coming out of it. Uh, largely, COVID has worked its way out. Chinese New Year is behind us. we got two good months. This is the first week people are back from Chinese New Year. Uh, we're expecting incrementally China will get stronger into February and March. Now, a little more than a year ago, you launched your microchip 3.0 strategy. Given the turbulence that we've had in the economy thus far, what's your pace for continuing to pursue that? But we're going full steam on it. Uh, it, it is delivering on all aspects of uh, growth. Uh, improvements in gross margin, operating margin, cash generated, and the capital return that we have uh, significantly enhanced over the last 15 months. And we just upped it again uh, for uh, what we announced in the March quarter. And we have laid out a, a scenario of how we continue to grow the capital return to shareholders, uh, heading towards 100% of free cash flow uh, within about eight quarters. Ganesh, just to follow up on my last question, I know in the near term you're expecting the Chinese market to be incrementally stronger coming out of the Chinese New Year and the COVID wave. But in the longer term, how are you thinking about it amid rising geopolitical tensions and Washington's potentially extra um, export ban? So, you know, every time there is an export control, um, uh, you know, new directive, uh, it does have some effect on some of us. We haven't been at the center of some of what has been done say, the big changes that happened in early October, but there are spillover effects to us. 
you know, long term, China is a big market. Uh, it's not one that we can ignore. Uh, we need to anticipate that there are going to be some challenges. Uh, there will be some of the um, local efforts within China that we will need to comprehend. But we've also competed against Chinese competition for 30 plus years and held our own with it. Um, and uh, so we expect that uh, you know, China will have uh, new challenges that come along. Uh, you know, we are continuing to work towards improving our existing business, but we're also sowing seeds elsewhere that we can get incremental business that is not reliant just on China only. All right, uh, Ganesh Murthy, CEO of Microchip, with that stock up about 3% post-earnings. Thank you. Great, thank you. Still ahead today, shares of Nordstrom uh, surging this morning as Ryan Cohen sets his sights on that company. We'll get details on that as we get a pretty persistent bid here. Dow still up about 35 points. One more thing, shares of Nordstrom surging more than 20% today. And this is as activist investor and meme stock master Ryan Cohen secures a, quote, sizable stake in the company, according to the Wall Street Journal. The retailer, the latest target for Cohen following his interest in Bed Bath & Beyond and GameStop, of course. He got a big plans in motion following Nordstrom's lackluster quarter reported a few weeks ago. Nordstrom responding in a statement, quote, while Mr. Cohen hasn't sought any discussions with us in several years, we're open to hearing his views as we do with all shareholders. Carl, uh, for now at least in this risk-on moment, retail investors willing to follow him into this name. It's notable that when we heard about his stake in Alibaba, though we don't know the size of it, the stock didn't move on that. So perhaps investors think he has a better chance at making some change here. Yeah, I think, John, uh, the street felt a bit confused uh, this morning. I know uh, BMO said we are not ambitious enough to opine on uh, Cohen's aspirations, and we need a lot more clarity, although they admit it probably is a short-term positive. Yeah, short-term at least. You know who else has a sizable stake in Nordstrom? The Nordstrom family. They got 30 percent. So um, that's not going to be easy to deal with, Carl. Uh, indeed. Guys, we've been through a lot uh, last few sessions between uh, the mega cap tech and the Fed and the jobs number today. Speaking of uh, retail, those results are going to start to pour in in the coming weeks. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.